speaking of which, have uh, you ever thought about that, why reality TV is so uh, popular? Why is it that every time you open the internet, there's a story about the royal family? Does anybody, I, I wonder, does anybody really care about the royal family and what princess so-and-so is doing or her new hairstyle or shoes? Um, I've always been a little confused about that. But this is evidently an interest to the general population. We have reality TV, we have stories about the royal family, we have stories about uh, people enduring floods and fires and all sorts of difficult things uh, make up our news. And we enjoy it, we read it, we listen to it, we watch it. And I don't think it's because we're masochistic or deranged in any way. I think that we're interested in knowing that everyone, no matter who they are, has difficulty. And we can relate to them. And we want to see how it works out for them. I mean, the PGA golf championship is this weekend, and uh, one of the major stories surrounding the tournament is that one of the own golfers has died recently of, of cancer, last week, I think. And it's dominated the discussion of this golf tournament. And it's, it's like that in our world because we can relate. We all have pains and sorrows. And we are a, a human race that's identified by that, if nothing else. We are struggling with suffering. We suffer physically with illness and disease and accidents. We suffer emotionally with family challenges, personal history, including the death of loved ones and difficult relationships. We, we suffer because we're humans. And this reality is difficult and if we know the scriptures, we see that our perception, what I'm describing to you, is confirmed. Because the scripture speaks of this all the time. For example, Job 5, verse 7, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. This happens to everybody, Peter said. And then James, he says, let's, let's turn this around. Let's make suffering something joyful. Consider it pure joy when we encounter sufferings of many kinds. So participating in the human race means that you're going to participate in suffering. Now, I know this the society we live in tries to minimize that as much as possible. Um, but sooner or later, this is what we're going to experience. It's basically what it means to be human is you're going to participate in human things like suffering. And I think that this is, this is a result of the fall into sin that our first parents took us into. Suffering, we could say, is a consequence of sin. If there were no sin, there would the world be free from suffering. I think the Bible teaches that. And I think it also teaches that this is why we look forward to that great day when there will be no more tears, be no sorrow, be no more sin, no more suffering. 
It's, something, it's one of our great hopes, isn't it? So suffering's inevitable. Um, if it is, do you have a personal strategy for dealing with it? Or are you just going to wing it when it comes? You're just going to, or hope it never comes. I mean, some people actually, their strategy is that of the ostrich. Let's just pretend it's never going to happen. But have you thought about this reality? Suffering in a significant amount of it will be your experience sooner or later. And if that's the case, which it seems it is, do you have a strategy for dealing it so that you won't fall apart completely when it comes? So I think it's, I think it's a good idea as Christians to have a plan for suffering. Even though suffering is directly or indirectly related to sin and is a consequence, I think, of sin, God offers a balm to us in suffering. Even, even though I think that suffering is the proper and right judgment for sin, God mercifully offers us in our suffering something that we desperately need. He, he offers us something very important. So anytime you find yourself experiencing pain, suffering, or affliction of some kind, what is it that you need? What is it that you want? Aren't you and I and every human being in the midst of suffering desperate for comfort and relief? I think that's the case. And all of us, because of our identity with the human race, need an outside source of encouragement, hope. Where do you find it? I know it's not on reality TV, um, so where do, you, where do you find this hope and this comfort necessary to navigate the inevitable? You know, we all know where to get gas when our car is running low. We all know what to do when we're thirsty. Do we know what to do, where to go when we suffer? Today we're going to enter a new stanza, Psalm 119. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it to Psalm 119, and we're going to look at verses 49 through 56. And the focus of this stanza, you've guessed it, is comfort. Each of the previous six stanzas that we've studied have had their particular focus, even though this whole psalm is really a reflection of how the Word of God benefits the life of anyone who will learn it and apply it. That's the, the general theme of the psalm. Each stanza made up of eight verses is really a different subject matter that relates to the overall theme. Um, each of these stanzas focus is important and, and practical in the Christian life. But today we're going to enter a stanza called the Zion stanza. And it's focused on comfort for the afflicted. Encouragement for those who are going through difficulty. So if you're in the middle of a trial currently, then the stanza will sound good to you. If you're currently in a circumstance of your life where there, it seems to be smooth sailing, just be patient. This stanza will be helpful at some point or other in your life. So let's read this psalm and then we'll dive into it. Psalm 119, starting in verse 49, says... 
Remember your word to your servant to which you have made me, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utter, utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen on me that I have kept your precepts. So I want you to recognize from this psalm the importance of how to deal with difficulty when you encounter it. I want this, this psalm to be a, a, a road sign, if you will, pointing the way when times get dark in your life. Um, I want you to learn to lean on God as your source of hope and comfort during difficulty. This stanza points the way. This stanza will be very helpful to you. This is one of those, this is one of those stanzas that um, not only reveals uh, the path, the direction, but it shows us the actual comfort to be had in times of difficulty. So the first point, and I have two main points in this sermon. The first is this, that what we get from this stanza that I've just read you is that God cares about suffering. He cares. God, God is a God who cares about the pains of people. Uh, he, he's not indifferent to your suffering or anyone's suffering for that matter. He even cares about the suffering of wicked people, the Bible tells us. Uh, you remember Israel, God's people, who were always uh, drifting off, walking away, rebelling against God. They were in the category of wicked people. And yet God continually brings comfort to them. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, he says, comfort, comfort my people. After, after through the prophet Isaiah um, proclaiming judgment, God turns around and from chapter 40 through the end of the, of the book, 66, and Isaiah, he talks about the comfort that he has planned for his people, wicked people. So God cares about suffering, even the suffering of wicked people. And then 2 Corinthians, you know, familiar passage, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. God cares about suffering. You know, some people don't believe this. They don't believe that God is a personal being who actually has an interest in my welfare or even my existence. Some believe that God just spun the universe, got it going, and then walks away and he's on vacation here until this thing stops spinning. That's not the indication of the Bible, nor specifically this particular stanza in Psalm 119. The fact that the author is willing in, in verse 49 to remind God of his promise is an indication that somewhere God has said he cares. That's why the author is reminding him of something. If you just do a cursory reading of just this book, the book of Psalms, you can't escape the fact that God cares for us, especially those of us who are hurting. Are you hurting? 
in any way. You got to know this to start with. God cares about it. He actually is interested in your welfare. And since God cares about suffering, we should seek his attention in it. Are you suffering? Here's the first response. Seek God's attention. Wave a flag, get his attention, flash the lights. Not as if he doesn't know, but because we're told to. This stanza seems to indicate that we should seek God's attention. Believers can and should humbly remind God of his promises because the Bible says he's interested. Now, I don't think this is an uh, act of presumption. I think it's an act of faith. This verse particularly, verse 49, indicates that God initiates our spiritual life. He says, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. God has made us hope in his word. So God initiates our spiritual life, and he is interested, as we'll get to, in sustaining it. He not only gives you spiritual breath, he keeps the oxygen flowing spiritually your direction. God is interested, so we must seek his attention. I don't know if you noticed, but verse 49 is the only verse in this stanza that actually is a request for God's attention. This is the only prayer in this stanza, which is odd for stanzas in Psalm 119. But praying for God's help in time of need is not only a good idea, the Bible commands it. It's so as Christians, as obedient Christians, we really don't have a choice in our suffering but to go to God with a request for his attention and his help. You're familiar with many of these verses, but let me read for you one of the most well-known, Hebrews 4.16. Notice the command of this verse, let us then with confidence draw near. He's telling us what to do. Draw near where? To the throne of grace. That's God's throne of grace. Why? So that we'll receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Why are we told repeatedly in Scripture to come to God for help when he already knows about it? It doesn't take too much thought to understand why. So God cares that we suffer. He wants us to acknowledge that he cares. He wants us to admit we need his help in suffering. And when you ask for help, you've done those things. Next we see... Since God cares about suffering, we should trust his providence. We see that at least in four verses in this stanza. Verse 50, this is my comfort and my affliction that your promise gives me life. God knows something about our life and our needs. And his word addresses those things. Verse 51, the insolent, that is those people who are, are contentious with us about our faith, utterly deride me. God knows that those kind of things will be coming from people who don't like God or his word. We're talking about his providence here. Verse 54 continues, even in the house of my sojourning, all the difficulties that are associated with our life of sojourning, our, our walk through this experience of suffering life, God is aware of. And then verse 55, I remember your name in the night. O oh Lord, and keep your law. In those dark times, 
that God is completely aware of. He wants us to seek him. So we should trust his providence because he cares about us. I want to say this about his providence as it relates to suffering. God orchestrates these things in our lives. He orchestrates times of suffering and hardship so that he can reveal things about himself to us. When we're especially attentive. Have you noticed that in your Christian life? That you become especially attentive when things get difficult? You become more spiritually conscious? More interested in the word? You know, you, 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 all of a sudden prayer becomes more regular when things are difficult? It's during those times of suffering where we learn about God in ways that we don't when the path is smooth. So God, God orchestrates these things, and you might be sitting here thinking, well, why doesn't he just simply orchestrate difficulty out of my life? If he's in such love with me, why not orchestrate this difficulty out? I mean, this is what I do for my kids. Why can't he do that for me? I mean, maybe what we do for our kids isn't the best. I don't know. There's an idea. Maybe God actually has a better idea about parenting his children. Whether he does or not, this is how it is. He orchestrates suffering to experience something about him that we wouldn't learn on our own if life were smooth. God believes that Christ-likeness is better than ease. And you and I both know that ease doesn't develop Christ-likeness the way difficulty does. You're aware of that, right, in your own life? Yeah, so if God orchestrates the times and seasons of our lives, it makes complete sense for him to include difficulty in the process of becoming like Jesus. That's how we get there. The, the providence of God controls and directs our suffering, and he delights in promising us grace and mercy and relief before it comes. He wants us to realize that he is a loving, caring God. He wants us to think of him as saying, I've got this, trust me. I know what you're going through. I have designed it for your good. Follow me through it. And he does this to show us his love. Are you concerned with facing old age and the suffering that goes with that? I mean, the older you get, the more that comes across your mind. Well, then the word of God with promises like the one in Isaiah 46 become meaningful to you. He says this in verse 4, Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. What a promise for those of us who are graying. Are you concerned with the painful and lonely path of disease? Are you concerned about your financial welfare? Well, we know this verse or these verses very well. Let's see if they might be helpful. 
Matthew 6, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow it is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat, or what are we going to drink, or what are we going to wear? The Gentiles do these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, these minor things, God will take care of. He'll add them unto you. You see, God, God orchestrates the struggle, the, the difficulty, the suffering of our lives because he loves us and he wants us to know him and trust him. He, he does this to encourage our trust. I think this is one of the basic issues of growing in Christ-likeness is to learn to trust God like Jesus did. Jesus trusted his heavenly Father. We, we can learn to trust the promises like the one we see in Psalm 89. God said, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. I just read for you a few verses of promise. God isn't going to violate those promises. There's always going to be delay between the promise and the fulfillment, right? The time of that delay is, is of concern to us. Um, and the, the delay isn't because God is unkind or that he's ignorant of your circumstances or that he's forgotten or that he's unable to do anything about it. No, his delay is to highlight his wisdom, his power to achieve, his love, and improve your faith in him, a faithful God. If God were to respond the moment you began to suffer, those things wouldn't happen. So having to wait on a promise um, tests our faith in God's character. Do we really believe that, that he is loving, that he's strong, that he's faithful, that he's wise, that this is actually the best? Do we trust that? It also deepens our love for God. And, and removes the gifts as our idols, the gifts that he gives. You know, this is, this is also an important thing. To love God um, aside from his gifts. Let me, let me take it maybe to a personal level that will help you understand. Do you love your spouse because of what they do for you or because of who they are? If you were to say, uh, honey, I'm going to stop doing all those things that you like me doing for you, would that change your love for your spouse? Now, I know that, that it's difficult to separate what our spouses do for us and their character as it is difficult to separate what God does for us and his character. But the question is worth thinking about. 
Why do we love God? Why do we love our spouses? When you have to wait on God's promises, especially a promise of comfort, your faith and love for Christ is tested. And I think if it is of true faith, your love for God grows. If on the other hand, you become bitter or cynical, then there's a spiritual disorder that I think you should examine. Trusting God for the fulfillment of his promises is promises to us brings encouragement in the waiting. It says 50, Psalm 57, 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. So with belief, with trust, with waiting comes comfort, comes hope. Isaiah 26, 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I mean, I, I've reviewed that verse often in my times of struggle. Is my mind stayed on you, Lord, or is it wrapped up in my circumstances? Where is the focus of my attention? Friends, if we, if we are able to trust people in our lives <clears throat> with promises they've made to us, like our parents, our spouses, whoever, our bosses, how much more can we trust God, the faithful one, to do the same? So God cares about our suffering. He, he, he has designed it for our good. Secondly, God comforts us. He actually comforts us in our suffering. And he does this primarily by his character and word. And that's, this is similar to what I was just talking about, but let me flesh it out a bit here. God comforts us in suffering by his character and word. What are some things about God's character that might comfort you? A, 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 a character issue that might comfort you um, in your relationship with your spouse might be their faithfulness, their consistency, their, their concern. And so you're comforted that something good is gonna happen in your relationship with your spouse because I know their character. What is it about God's character that gives you hope in your suffering, in your struggle? Well, <clears throat> these things we, we discover in scripture and in our own experience. God cannot lie. It's a character quality. He's unable to lie. Secondly, he cannot change. He can't be one thing one day and something else the next. He's always faithful. See, God's character reveals his interest in us and brings comfort knowing that he is a personal God with a vested interest in the welfare of his creatures. In verse 49, the author calls on God to remember his promises of comfort, his promises of salvation. Remember, God, you've said these things to, you, to, to me, and I know that you cannot lie. I know that you cannot change. I know that you're faithful to your promises. And then we get to 55, the last verse in this stanza of comfort, or second to last verse. And he says, I remember your name in the night. When things are darkest, 
That's when I remember your name. What's he saying? I remember your character. That's what name meant in Old Testament vernacular. You see, God's names in the Old Testament are descriptions of his being. Like when we get to, to Genesis, 7, uh, Genesis 22, and he, he tells Abraham a new name for himself. Do you remember what it was? Jehovah Jireh. What does that name mean? God, my provider, or God will provide. That was particularly interesting to Abraham on the Mount Moriah, wasn't it? When it was either his son or a substitute that was going to die. God, my provider, came through, as he always does. We also read in Genesis 17 that God calls himself El Shaddai. You, remember, you know what that means? If you look at Genesis 17, it's particularly important. Because God had promised two very old people in their 90s that they would have a kid. God better be almighty. Well, this isn't going to happen. And so God says, by the way, Abraham, my name is God Almighty. And you will have a son. I'm going to see to it. So, and that's another name that he uses for himself. The God who sees. This is what he told Hagar, who was out in the desert with herself and her son dying of thirst. And God spoke to her and said, Hagar, my name is a God who sees. So his names, the reason his names come to mind of the psalmist here in verse 55 is because his name is a reflection of his character. And his character brings hope in difficult times. Application, get to know God better. <laughs> right? Comfort from the word evidently brings vitality to the soul. Look at verse 50. This is my comfort, my affliction, that your promise gives me life. It brings vitality. It, it's, this life of our soul is initiated by the word of God, it says in verse 40, I mean verse 49, which you have made me hope. Your word, in which you have made me hope, this, this word brings forth, is initiated by God. James 1.18 says this is, Clearly, as we can comprehend, he says, of his own will, that is God's own will, he brought us forth. How? How does God bring spiritual life to your soul? Through his word, he says. And how does he sustain that life that he's brought about by his word? 1 Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, how? Through the living word of God. God's, your spiritual life is initiated by God's word and sustained by God's word. Application, be in God's word. That's the, the overall application of this whole chapter, isn't it? So let's look at the, the character here of, of biblical comfort in the context of this life coming from the word. Life 
is sustained by, initiated by the word. What is the character of biblical comfort? First of all, it's divine. Biblical comfort is from God. Psalm 94, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Whose consolations? God's. They're divine. God's comforts are divine, obviously. They're, they're, they're durable. They're, they're lasting. They flow from this eternal fountain of, of hope. Next character of biblical comfort is that it's strong. Hebrews 6.18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement. The promises of God are strong. Biblical comfort is divine, which means it's strong. It actually works. Um, it's full also. What does that mean? Well, depth and width. Think of depth and width. The, the biblical comfort the promises of God have, have a great fullness to them, a depth and a width. The depth we see in 2 Corinthians 1.5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, which all Christians do, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also. There is an abundance of comfort in Christ. It's, it is deep. It's also wide, deep and wide. Sounds like a song. Um, but the width is, is amazing also. And what I mean by that is th there is no affliction known to man that the word of God does not meet. There's nothing outside of the parameters of God's comfort and, and goodness to us. You're never going to come up with a suffering that God hasn't thought of. His word deals with our sin problem. His word deals with our hope for heaven. His word deals with every possible event that we may experience. It is wide. And, and we're told that, that it is in the conflict, in the suffering, in the affliction, that God is especially with us. You remember the story in Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had a little suffering to deal with, didn't they? They, they ended up in this huge oven. Um, they were actually thrown into an oven. And what did we read about that story? That when the king looked into the oven... What did he see? Three or four folks. He saw four. And who was the fourth? He looked like the son of man. God was in the fire with his people. And the point is exactly that. God is always in the fire with you. He's not oblivious to it. He's not, well, good luck. No. He's in the midst with us. This is what the Word of God assures us of. The gracious presence of God. Psalm 91, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him, God says, in trouble. With him. I will rescue him and honor him. Isaiah 43, one of my favorites. 
If nothing else, these verses are going to be of encouragement to you when you reread them. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Not all, I want, it's not, he didn't say, I'll be on the other side cheering you on. No, I'm going to be with you in the fire. I'm going to be with you in the water. They'll not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flame will not consume you. You say, well, what about people who die of cancer? Were they believers? If so, God was with them through the fire. So I think the first, first thing I want you to, to hear about God's comfort and suffering is it comes from his character and from his word. Next, I want you to see that it comes for the benefit of others. God's comforting you isn't just for you. It's for the benefit of others in your life who are associated with you, who are watching you. I read portions of this earlier, but listen to the whole thing. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that, why does God comfort us? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which, which we ourselves heard from God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So when you go through difficulty, when you go through hardship and suffering, you receive comfort from God, from his character, from his word. And then a brother or sister goes through similar things and you're able to be there quickly because you've experienced the comfort that they need. And being in God's family makes our suffering all the more meaningful, all the more important. How you and I deal with disappointment, sorrow, and pain is lighting the path for those who follow. What, what path are you marking out for those who are in your life following your example? A little over a year ago, a good friend of mine, Dave Hawes, passed away. Many of you know him. And in the, in the last couple months of his life, I went and visited him a few times um, to be an encouragement to him. Guess who left encouraged? I'm hoping Dave did, but I did, certainly. I asked him about how he was going to, how he was dealing with the impending death that he was going to face, the, the, the pain that he was going to suffer. I asked him that every time I met him. And it was an unbelievable source of encouragement to me. He lit the way for me. And, and if you visited him in his last couple of months, you, you heard the same thing. My, my brother-in-law was diagnosed here about six months ago with, I think, liver cancer. Stage four, liver cancer. And they said, you have six weeks, get your house in order. And so I was in conversation with him during those six weeks and asked him the same kind of questions. What, what, how is your soul? How, how is your joy? Are you, I mean, he was a believer, he is a believer. What's, tell me, <laughs> I want to know. And he did, and it was a great source of encouragement to me. My brother-in-law was um, 
had a different outcome than Dave Hawes. Um, my brother-in-law is, is alive and well and no sign of cancer at this point. Um, and I thank God for that. But what was most beneficial to me was not the announcement of him being cancer-free, but him telling me how he was dealing with the darkness. And then my dad, I mean, he's 87. Um, one foot in the grave, one on the banana peel kind of situation. And I'm interested. How's this time of life, Dad? What, what can you tell me? I'm, I'm on deck. <laughs> what, what can you tell me, Dad? Lighting the way. So these folks suffering and their comfort in the suffering wasn't just for them. And I would argue it was more for me than for them. And my hope and prayer is that when I face those times, those very same times, that I'll be an encouragement to you and to my children and grandchildren, if my kids will ever get on the stick. Being in God's family makes our suffering all that much more meaningful. This, the, these kind of stories remind me of the great, the great cloud of witnesses in uh, Hebrews 12, right? They're, they're not just there cheering us on. They lived to light the path. This is what Peter says about this relating to Christ. 1 Peter 2, for to you, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Not just in the steps of suffering, but in dealing with the suffering. How did Jesus deal with suffering? That's how we should deal with suffering. And then James 5, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophet's who spoke in the name of the Lord. You, you want to know how you're going to deal with suffering? Pay attention to those who've done it well. Mimic their faith. Mimic their hope. Be those for those who are following us. So God comforts us in suffering for others. And finally, for the praise of his own glory. God comforts us. This is the ultimate goal of every believer, isn't it? The glory of God. I think we would not argue about that. But God receives glory from people who ask him for help. And this is obvious. You wouldn't ask if he couldn't do it. <laughs> right? This is what Psalm 50 says. He says, call on me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you and you'll glorify me. There's the formula. You get in trouble. You ask me for help. I'll give it, and you'll glorify me. That's a real simple formula. God is supposed to get glory from your suffering. Why? Because you're going to ask for help in the middle of it. Someone who can do something about it. Secondly, God receives glory from people who trust him in suffering. You, you, you deem him trustworthy by believing. You deem him trustworthy by asking. 
Third, God receives glory from people who can sing during suffering. Look at verse 54 and 55. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Can you sing in your suffering? Have you sung in your sojourning? Maybe even literally sung, like Paul and Silas did in Acts 16. I mean, these two guys were suffering. I would say getting beaten to death, almost to death, is suffering. And what were they doing? That same day, singing the praise of God's glory. In stocks, in a prison. And you know what the result of their singing was? The conversion of the jailer. Who received glory for that? Paul and Silas? No, God. Their suffering resulted in the glory of God because they could sing in the darkness. Friends, this is, this is a wonderful stanza. Um, I'm not certain how long we're going to be in it. At least one more Sunday. But I, I, I hope it's a great encouragement to you. I know it will be if you're currently suffering. I pray it will be um, something that will stick in your mind for the day when you actually suffer yourself. This is, a, this is the road marker, this stanza. You'll remember. God will bring it to your memory. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this kind of word from you. We thank you that we can be assured that you see us, that you know our circumstances, that you care about those circumstances, and that you can do something about it. God, oh, what a, what a Savior we have. You have experience the pain and suffering of humanity in your son Christ Jesus our Savior he has endured everything that we might and he laid out a path for us to follow help us to be faithful in walking that path ourselves in times of suffering so that we might be a, a beacon of hope and light and comfort and peace to those who might be following us we, we lift our praise to you, God. We thank you. We give you glory um, for including these eight verses in the scriptures that we might have hope, that we might have consolation and, and encouragement and peace in our darkness. I pray this in the name of our great comforter, Jesus Christ. Amen.